From O'Melveny and Myers, this is the Cram Down Podcast. All right, welcome to the Cram Down. Thanks everyone for joining us. I'm your host, Daniel Shama, a restructuring partner at O'Melveny and Myers. Uh, thanks again, everyone, for, for joining us uh, today. Um, today we have a special guest. Uh, we're joined by Dan Hugo, who is a senior managing director at FTI, uh, and we're going to talk a little bit about um, COVID <laughs> and you know what we what he experienced, what the, the professionals uh, who had to navigate uh, that situation experienced. Um, a lot of it, I'm sure, will be familiar to some of you, but also you know what do we expect going forward? How has the practice changed? Um, you know, post, you know, hopefully post COVID, you know, knock on wood, we're, we're hopefully, uh, seeing a little, hopefully it's going more into the rear view mirror here. Um, so Dan, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Um, let's start, maybe just talk a little bit about your background, how long you've been at FTI, your role there. Uh, you know, you and I have worked together, but maybe share with some of our listeners who most of whom probably already know who you are, but maybe give them a little bit of your background. Great. Thanks, Daniel. And thanks for having me on this morning. I've been with FTI for 13 years now, about 20 years of total industry experience. My focus at almost exclusively during my time at FTI is on company-side advisory, uh, including general restructuring financial advisory, as well as CRO engagement in our, in our management roles. We're, most of us at FTI are, are generalists with some folks who are industry specialists. I consider myself more of a generalist have done a lot in distribution, retail, and construction, uh, but that's that's me in a nutshell. You know, and I thought about this, you know, because we're both named Daniel, I realized this could get confusing, but, you know, I think people will be able to distinguish our voices. <laughs> so I think your role, it seems that a lot of what you do, from what I can tell, and just in my experience uh, working with you, a lot of what uh, you're doing is sort of CRO, interim management, um, financial assistance, you know, operational assistance. Um, you know, is that right? I mean, that's, that seems to be mostly sort of what you're focused on, which isn't surprising given what FTI does. That's absolutely right. And so it seems to me that um, a lot of uh, sort of like rewinding the clock to before COVID, um, a lot of what you had to do in just in dealing with folks in, in your side, in your part of the industry over the years, it's very hands-on, right? So like you get put you get brought in as a, you know, as a turnaround advisor or a restructuring advisor, or whatever it is, you know, maybe as a CRO, um, you're, you and your team get very deeply embedded with the company, right? You, you're working very closely with finance and with other, you know, and treasury and, and, and accounting people and really understanding how the company operates. Um, so, for, so first of all, you know, am I right about that? Was it very hands-on? I mean, how did you, you know, on a personal level, were you, on, were you like living on planes for most of those 20 years and like just sort of living in, you know, random cities across the country and, and working with companies like that? Or had you always been sort of in the, you know, uh, pre- anticipating COVID and, and more remote and, you know, doing a lot of what you're, you're, you're able to do a lot of what you normally do, you know, from the comfort of your own office or your own home? No, definitely the former. Um, I, I explain to people who are outside of our industry what I do, and I tell them I, I'm on a plane 48 weeks a year, and, and most people think I'm exaggerating. But that's for the last 10 or 12 years, I'd say I've, I've been on a plane at least 30 weeks a year in a slow year, sometimes 48 or 50 weeks a year. So we're definitely on site with management teams. I kind of view our role 
as company advisors in a restructuring process as the bridge between the actual operation of the company and the business and the management team and all of the deal side um, and restructuring process side of things and those constituents and getting in and really understanding the inner workings of a company, being able to quickly react to changes in, in the company's condition that precipitated the restructuring um, and then kind of bridge all of those operational and company specific dynamics to get a solution in place that then satisfies the overall restructuring process while dealing with lenders, investors, and all the other advisors, et cetera, that go along with the process. So I kind of view our role as, as the bridge between the management team actually trying to operate a business while dealing with the restructuring process, and then those folks on the other side who are focused solely on the restructuring process, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think you said something important that um, you know isn't always intuitive to people who aren't necessarily in the trenches. You know, you're working with a company, you know, you've been through you know, you know, scores of restructurings in your career. So you sort of, you know what the process looks like. And, and, and obviously, look, they're all different. Everyone's got their own unique challenges. Different industries have different, you know, issues, whatever. But, you know, at a high level, like it's an issue, it's, a, it's an area you're very familiar with, obviously. But your client, in all likelihood, has never done this before, right? And all of a sudden, you know, they're being asked to, you know, potentially report information in new ways or, you know, manage certain job functions differently from how they've been doing it for their entire careers and, you know, at that company. And so I imagine part of the benefit of being on the ground um, with a company in your role is almost managing the psychology of it, right? It's it's working hand in hand with, with, with operational people at the company, with, you know, finance, accounting, whoever, to, you know, sort of hold their hands and, 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 figure out how to adjust their systems and their processes to a new paradigm that they probably have never really encountered before. Yeah, that's absolutely right, Daniel. And when you add on to that, everything you said is correct. And then I would just layer on, there's an undue amount of stress on those folks as well. So not only is it uncertain, but it's uncertain generally in a bad way. Uh, most of the companies we're dealing with have run out of liquidity, have had some significant disruption in their industries, um, have had a transaction or some other uh, type of capital markets activity that has failed or is failing. And so not only are they unfamiliar with the process and we have to help them get comfortable with the process, but we're doing that with the backdrop of a tremendous amount of pressure and stress on folks. So you're spot on in that you know, we joke that our role is 70% technical and, and probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 30% psychologist or other advisor, uh, uh, counselor maybe is a better word to folks. And a lot of what we do is managing the psyche of people as much as it is managing the technical side of things. And so you go, you move forward to last year um, and it feels like 100 years ago, but it's not even two years. But, you know, it's early March 2020. You know, the world shuts down. We're all locked in our living rooms. What was your um, practice mix like at that moment, right? You know, call it the first week of March 2020 when, you know, everything kind of came screeching to a halt overnight and, you know, flights are canceled and, you know, we're getting guidance not to leave our houses and all this crazy stuff. Were you already, we'll get to sort of like the craziness that sort of, you know, unfolded over the, you know, the, 
six to eight weeks or longer, you know, shortly thereafter. But just at that first sort of 12.01 a.m. of of the COVID crisis, were you already like busy full up on a bunch of mandates? Were you sort of, you know, at a regular pace? I mean, sort of what was your uh, workload like at that moment? If you can remember, maybe you can't. <laughs> no, I can. We were, uh, I won't go too far down the, the specifics of, of my anecdotal situation, but we were actually on site at a client site near Westchester. If you remember, Westchester was kind of um, the epicenter there the first week in the U.S. that folks really realized things were bad um, and were worried that we weren't going to get out of Westchester Airport to get back home and, and had rental cars booked to drive home to home for me in Chicago, uh, to drive home from Chicago, uh, sorry, from Westchester to Chicago in case we couldn't get out of the airport. So that was how I kind of rolled into the start of COVID. But my my backlog and, and workload at that time was, was on a relatively large restructuring that had us going kind of full time before any of the COVID ramp in our business happened that back half of March and into early April. Yeah. And I do remember that because I lived, I live, I live like just outside that containment zone. And it's, it, again, it's sort of, I don't want to get too far down this path because it's no, <laughs> it's not why people are listening, but it is, it is weird to kind of think back to when that was like a big moment. So, um, well, that's interesting though, that you were sort of caught, you know, um, sort of, in a spot where all of a sudden like the disruption was, you know, on a, on a very personal level figuring out how to get home and get to the next phase of things. So obviously COVID was one of those, you know, massive, you know, events that is, you know, particularly on the operational side, just hugely disruptive. Um, you know, were there particular challenges that you saw COVID posed, um, particularly in those early call it, you know, first, you know, three months or so, when it felt like, you know, the sands kept shifting beneath your feet, um, you know, every time you turned on the news, were there particular challenges that you saw um, in that period of time in, in, in doing your job as you normally do it? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think not to be repetitive, but it's kind of consistent with the theme that we've, we've spoken about thus far. I, we really need people focused on the issues at hand. And when I say people, I mean folks at the company that we're dealing with. Um, from the executives all the way down to some of the mid-level viewers who are actually handling the day-to-day workload. During a restructuring, those folks need to work more than they normally would. And sometimes it's hard to get those people motivated, even when we're on site with them, uh, to, to do the work necessary and the timeline necessary to effectuate the restructuring successfully. And when you added the personal stress that everyone had on their shoulders related to COVID, I, I found that to be really challenging and to be honest, you had to be fair with people, right? At, at some point, people's personal lives and their kids being in or out of school and loved ones with health issues, you know, really do, those are real issues that weigh on people. And trying to motivate folks to stay focused on the task at hand and be really uh, on the ball nine to five while having all the personal issues floating around in the back of their minds, I found to be very challenging for the first shoot, you know, at least. 30 days, if not maybe 90 of COVID. And I imagine that the remote working environment just exacerbated that, right? Where you can't, you know, I, I, you know, I've been, you know, at least on, you know, in my practice, you know, 
the the analogy is sort of like that lead up to a, a bankruptcy filing and, and the professionals are all kind of in the trenches together and you're you know you're working around the clock and you know a lot of times what you know what motivates people is you know you're ordering a bunch of pizzas at two o'clock in the morning to kind of like power through because you got something you got to get done by the morning or, or what have you you know those kinds of you know it's it's just hard to do that when everyone's you know when everyone's in in their own houses um you know, with shaky Wi-Fi and the dogs barking in the background. And it just becomes, you know, say nothing of all the other more obviously serious, um, you know, issues a lot of people face that you were just talking about with kids and, and, and health issues and all the rest. So, but I imagine the, just the remote working aspect of it was, was challenging. And in particular, and this is what I want your take on, um, you know, your, you sort of, your practice, you need to be really malleable and adaptable, right? Like every company sort of runs things. I'm sure there's similarities across a lot of companies, but everybody does it a little bit differently. And having to sort of learn a company's systems and a company's way of doing things remotely just must be significantly more challenging, I have to think. It, it absolutely is. You, the, you hit on a good subtle point there, but many companies have the same systems and the same processes and the same functional breakdowns of the overall organization. Those things can be relatively common and consistent, but what's really unique company to company is where the holes are and the weaknesses in those areas. Some companies are stronger in one area uh, and weaker in another. And one of the things that we're always focused on right away is kind of understanding those strengths and weaknesses, and it helps us get companies through the process. And that, that is next to impossible to get a good handle on virtually. You really need to be on the ground seeing how the different departments function with each other, um, you know, who's staying late and working hard, who isn't, uh, who's really on the ball, who isn't. Um, and, and those dynamics became extremely challenging to navigate when you were remote um, and, and still are today. That, that'll be one thing that I, I think will probably continue to be difficult. There, there isn't technology that we're going to implement that, that's going to get around being able to see those dynamics day to day. Yeah. So getting a little granular, um, you know, a lot of what you do um, is financial forecasting, liquidity management, um, you know, and, and look, we, you know, I think you may disagree with me on this, but sometimes it, it does seem a little more art than science. Um, I mean, there's a little bit of science to it, but you know, maybe maybe the fairer way to say is that there are a lot of judgment calls that go into that work, right? When you're making assumptions and you you know you're often relying on experience um, and just you know judgment on you know how to forecast things. Um, tell let me talk a little bit about how that function was really stressed and challenging during the particularly the early parts of COVID? Absolutely. Great question. The, the way we normally plan, and I, and I would not disagree with your characterization. I would say that it's accurate, that there is a good bit of art, and, and maybe you'd say experience and judgment in place of art, but those are the same thing, really. So in, in normal times, that art or experience weighs into I'd say maybe a 10 or 15% variance up or down when doing forecasting. And you can do the science to, to be 85 or 90% accurate. And there's some certain zone of 10 to 15% that requires that judgment. Where things became really challenging in COVID is certain industries 
where, whether they were retail, retail adjacent service businesses, those businesses went to zero revenue overnight. Um, and that, that was obviously unprecedented. You didn't have data to do the science behind, you know, the normal 80% of your answer that you arrive at via science because you've got historic data to look at. That just didn't exist when companies shut down and went to zero revenue overnight. And in some instances, certain industries went to zero revenue or saw 70 or 80% declines in revenue while actually having to incur additional costs for PPE or for increasing shift time to be able to have greater capacity constraints within the factories. All of the different COVID protocols that increased cost were new, set against the background drop of significant declines in revenue. And so th those things were extremely challenging and they were extremely challenging, not just for organizations facing distress, but across the board. There, there was a Wall Street Journal article in June of last year that said by June, so three months into COVID, 218 of the companies in the S&P 500 pulled guidance and another 182 revised guidance. So even I think the most sophisticated public companies were having trouble navigating uh, all those dynamics that I laid out early in COVID and, and many continue to. Yeah, and in our experience and you know, the, the deal we worked on together last year, which was uh, the restructuring of 24-hour fitness, you had the overlay of, um, you know, you had sort of the uncertainty around COVID and, and, and zeroed out revenue and the like, but you had the uncertainty and, and candidly, you know, the, the inconsistency in government guidance and mandates on what can and can't be done. And I don't, I mean, you know, certainly there was some amount of, there was some, there was a fair bit of inconsistency within different, you know, branches of the government, but also just state to state, municipality, municipality. And so, you know, for, you know, in 24 hours case, for example, you know, a significant portion of their facilities are located in California, which had, you know, shutdown orders that were considerably, you know, stricter than, you know, the orders that were in place in Texas and Florida, which were the next two largest states. And so, you know, I imagine managing that and figuring out, you know, how to, you know, project revenue with your customers, you know, and and obviously predicting what the government's going to do was, you know, particularly in the first few months, was very tricky and very challenging. Um, but it just was another complication that you constantly had to navigate. Absolutely. That, that was a very challenging dynamic. And layering on or adding to what you said there, it was different state to state for sure. And, and all those state level differences that you just laid out, I would agree with. The other dynamic there was understanding even within the states, how the administrations were going to think about things one week, two weeks or a month out. And um, I won't get myself into any political trouble and, and name, name states specifically here, but Certain of those states seem borderline schizophrenic in, in how they handled things and how dramatically things changed week to week or month to month within a given state. And, and that made things very challenging. And I remember saying to multiple folks on that engagement that you referenced, it's hard for me to determine what XYZ governor is going to say when I'm sure today that governor doesn't know what the decision is going to be. So th those challenges where I, I think we were sitting there trying to figure out which way an administration was going to go when they didn't even know made things even more challenging. 
and I think in fairness to many of those government actors, right, the information was shifting, right? We're alert, we're sort of building the airplane while we were flying it. Um, and so, you know, you know, you can attribute it to, you know, a number of different factors as to why, you know, guidance may change you know, over time. But, you know, I think it's only fair to suggest that part of it's just because we got smarter about, you know, COVID and, and how to manage and mitigate the risks um, associated with it. Have you seen, has that, I, I imagine sort of now that we're, you know, 18, 19 months, you know, into it and, you know, hopefully it's, you know, receding with, you know, widespread vaccinations and, and other, you know, therapeutic uh, strategies and the like, um, has that uncertainty declined in your mind? Is it become, you know, have we gone, kind of gone back a little bit to normal in terms of your job and your your function of you know of CRO slash operational turnaround restructuring advisor? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I in the last call it four or five months, I've seen us revert more to normal. And and I think it's it's still TBD on what level of our work is going to be remote versus in person a year from now. Uh, and, and two years from now, but I have seen over the last four or five months a much greater level of comfort with management teams, boards, et cetera, with having advisors on the ground and wanting advisors on the ground. So it, it's interesting to me that, you know, nine or 10 months ago, people were saying maybe we'll be 80% remote forever or, or some number like that. And, and I think I've seen in the last three to five months that we're already going back to people welcoming and in some situations demanding that the advisors be on site because people just realize the efficiencies that we've talked about so far are, are real and, and really matter um, in intense restructurings where you've got to get an answer figured out quickly. That's interesting. I've not had a very a completely similar experience. And I wonder if the difference is a little bit the difference between your job and my job. I think that for the lawyers, there is definitely a growing appreciation for you know Zoom and Teams and, and WebEx and and the ways we can create efficiencies by not you know necessarily flying a hundred lawyers to sit in a conference room at a law firm to have a conversation you know over stale cookies that you can do a lot of that you know over Zoom you know virtually um, you know court hearings I think you know um, sure you know big hearings confirmation hearings trials. I think those, you know, hopefully will be back, in, you know, will be back to being in person. And I think there are real advantages to doing those kinds of hearings, um, you know, in person. But you know, the the fifteen minute status conference, you know, hopefully that's you know done virtually because it's just enormously inefficient. I had a case once years ago where I had to fly to Chicago um, once every four months to appear in front of a judge and tell him that there's been no update. <laughs> and it took me a day to get back and forth. And it was the most inefficient use of anyone's time. And I would think now we would, you know, I think there would be a recognition that, gee, that's the kind of thing that could be done, you know, over Zoom, over the phone, without having to put somebody on a plane and put them in a hotel for a night. Um, but I think your job is just different, right? I mean, like, it, it's so much more hands-on, it's so much more in the trenches, that there really isn't a substitute for sort of, you know, being embedded with the client in the way that you normally are. And so perhaps... You know, sure, there'll be some things that'll be virtual, you know, investor meetings, perhaps, I don't know. Um, but a lot of what you do, you really, it really was a poor substitute for, 
um, you know, the remote work was a poor substitute for doing it in person. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think the nuances between uh, what, what the lawyers do and, and you and, and what we do is, I agree with all those nuances you pointed out. Look, we will adapt and change, right? If we, you, you hit quickly on investor meetings, for example, or investor presentations, historically, you might have a management presentation to a group of investors where you flew three or four advisors and eight people from the management team to New York to present for two hours to all turn around and fly back to Ohio or wherever the company is located. Uh, and I think some of those things will change. I, I think people will realize that certain efficiencies can definitely be gained in, in issues like that. I think the other thing that we'll see maybe some changes in that we've seen a little bit is around new business and pitching new work, where previously a lot of that was done in person and some of those presentations might've been across the country or halfway around the world for a 15 minute pitch or presentation. Uh, and I think we're seeing some of that shift a little bit. I'm curious to see uh, if that sticks or, or if the folks making decisions on hiring advisors decide that they want them back in the room at some point in the near term. But yes, I, I think there will be for sure certain areas where we can take advantage of the technology. Uh, but I, I don't, I think the core of what we do will remain in person. Yeah, but I do. And I imagine, look, nobody's going to be more incentivized to figure out where, you know, you can rely on technology to keep those costs down than the companies that often foot the bill for a lot of those activities. And so I imagine, you know, they're in the best position to say, no, Dan, we actually need you on site. We need, you know, the three or four, whoever team members there, you know, Monday to Thursday, you know, working with us because we just can't do it and do it as well without you guys here. But, you know, O'Melveny, Daniel, like, we'll see you guys on Zoom. That's fine. You don't have to fly out here. No, and that's, I, I say that too when I talk about this with others, that I think it'll be client-specific. And, and I've had two situations where during the pitch phase, the client who's footing the bill for us said, I want to know who your team is, and I want you to confirm with all of them that they're comfortable traveling and that they'll be on site. And if you can't do that for me before the pitch, I, I don't want you pitching. Um, so there, there are clients who, again, to your point, are the ones footing the bills who, who are demanding that we're there on site. And then others, I, I think, are maybe more comfortable with the virtual side of things and, and their organization has adopted virtual better. I think they're more comfortable with the advisors being virtual and other organizations themselves haven't actually adopted it and accepted it as much and are the ones that we're seeing push people to be in person. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Um, so let, we only have a couple of minutes left. So I sort of want to look forward a little bit and get your perspective on the on the market generally. Um, you know, the intensity of last year um, was followed very quickly early this year by um, you know pretty dramatic slowdown in in, in bankruptcy. Um, you know, I'm not breaking news. I think people listening to this probably are aware of it, and you can look at all sorts of, of studies and data. The one that jumped out at me was new chapter 11, new commercial chapter 11 filings in the first half of 2021 was at its lowest level since 1985, which I think I thought was pretty well captured sort of the, the dramatic uh, change in, in the market. I guess two part question. One, I think you experienced the same thing, but I'm curious if you did or didn't. And two, do you see that, persisting? Do you see it starting? Do you see restructuring activity 
starting to pick up? Do you think it will pick up soon? What's your perspective on sort of how the market's going to shake out over the next, you know, call it six months or so? Yeah, great two-part question. On, on the first part, you know, we saw the slowdown too. We do have the ability in slower structuring times to pivot to some interim management work, which many of us do, and it's almost a perfect overlap with restructuring work. So some of us who, who are restructuring vets will do some sort of interim management work during the slower structuring times. We, we saw some of that happen. For some of our junior staff, the skill sets of our junior staff are very transferable to transaction work. Mm -hmm. And as you're aware, when the restructuring market tanked during the period you outlined, the transaction side of, of all of our businesses was up you know, 300% year over year versus the COVID comparable. So a huge pickup in the transaction side of things allowed some of our junior staff who have transferable skills to work on that. So for sure, we were not as busy in 2021 as we were in 20, but we were able to keep folks busy working on some things that weren't uh, bankruptcies. So on the, on the second part of your question going forward, it's definitely a little busier for us now on the restructuring side uh, the last maybe two to three months than it was six to nine months ago. So I, I think we are seeing a slight pickup. Uh, some of the areas we're seeing pickup are businesses or industries that had demand pulled forward. You're kind of parlaying these two points together, right? A lot of the reason we're slow today is because we had a lot of demand for restructuring pulled forward to last year i.e. things that might have restructured in 2021 got accelerated to 2020. Um, you know, there are other industries that I think we're seeing similar trends in and, and they might not play out as quickly as sometimes things do in our industry. But I think over the next year or so, you might see some areas where there was a lot of spending and demand pulled forward into 20 and early 21 that, that start to see some issues. Interesting. Yeah, I think we're seeing a very similar thing. And by the way, it's also similar in sort of, you know, managing you know, our own staff. Um, you know, we've, there's, you know, I think the, for the legal side, often there's a long tail to these mandates. So, you, you know, that's always a nice thing to have um, is sort of that tail work. That's, that's real work that needs to get done, but you don't necessarily need a new mandate, you know, to, to, to keep people busy. And, you know, skill sets are certainly transferable both to transactional work and litigation work. Um, and we have, you know, seen that, you know, increased chatter that, that you're describing and, and you, know, you know, things are starting to potentially percolate again in our industry. Um, well, we're at the 30 minute mark, Dan. So you've been really generous with your time. Any final thoughts for our listeners? Anything else you want to share on sort of what you see going forward? No, I, th I think this has been a great conversation. I appreciate, excuse me, appreciate you having me. And maybe we can do a follow up a year from now and see if any of our uh, predictions come, come true. Oh, well, well, I'll have our listeners keep track and then we'll, uh, we'll, we'll start placing bets, but Dan, thank you, but I'd love to do that. Dan, thanks for joining us today. Uh, folks stay tuned. We'll show, we'll do another episode in, in the next few weeks and uh, everyone enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for listening to O'Melveny's the cram down podcast. This podcast is a summary for general information and discussion only and may be considered an advertisement for certain purposes. 
It is not a full analysis of the matters presented, may not be relied upon as legal advice, and does not create an attorney-client relationship between the firm and the listener. Portions of this communication may contain attorney advertising. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. Views expressed by guests are their own. Please direct all inquiries regarding New York's rules of professional conduct to O'Melveny & Myers, LLP. Times Square Tower, 7 Times Square, New York, New York, 10036. Telephone 212-326-2000.